You'll be seated, please. <clears throat> when I want to begin reading at verse 23. We're only looking at the first, uh, these four verses, 23 to 27 this morning. I was going to go a little further, but uh, the passage that follows is the demon-possessed man. And why that takes a little more time and more time than I felt I had is that um, it is recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, this account is as well. However, there, there's a couple of uh, things that we need to look at regarding that next week, and, and we're going to do it then. So we're limiting ourselves to this wonderful story uh, that takes place by the water. So that works out because we're surrounded by water, and uh, we were marveling this morning. We had, we had rain this morning, and I've said in the Sunday school hour, it's wonderful that we had, uh, we had late spring and we had fall and, and we have winter. And uh, it all happened in about eight minutes this morning. And that was quite fascinating to do that. It reminded me down east one time we were playing soccer late October in Bathurst, New Brunswick. And uh, uh, it was a wonderful fall afternoon. And uh, it was Indian summer. And that uh, was wonderful. We loved that time of year down east. And uh, we started the soccer game, and it went very well. And, and then it clouded over, and then we started the rain, and then it became sleet, uh, and then it became snow. And we were playing. We could hardly see ourselves by the end of the game. Uh, don't you love weather? Uh, th this climate change stuff, it just happens by the second around here. So... Uh, uh, never mind that stuff, just uh, sit around and watch it all take place before your very eyes. Well, it's the kind of area that this account takes place in uh, because uh, the, the Sea of Galilee, um, which is oftentimes called the Lake of Galilee because technically it is more a lake than a sea, uh, and it has fascinating history to it. If you have a Bible with a map in it, you notice that it looks a bit like a, an inverted pear. If it looks like it's not inverted, it means you're holding it upside down or something, but it looks a bit like an inverted pear in terms of its shape. You'll also notice that you'll see some names cropping up in the next couple of weeks, and they've already cropped up in terms of Capernaum and uh, uh, Magdala, Bethsaida, and so forth. Uh, th this becomes home territory for Jesus for a period of time. And it's important to get a, a sense of the geography of all of this. You recall, of course, that this is still the, the follow-up, if you will, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and Jesus is now beginning to move along, and, and people are still following him. And after a while, we, we see from the passage in verse 23 that Jesus is going to depart and verse 23 uh, shows him getting into the boat. And his disciples followed, them, followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. And when they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing, he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And we're going to insert a little more later because we have to sort of consult Luke and Mark uh, as well because they, 
they, they, they give a picture that fleshes it out even more. And it is a fascinating account. Jesus has spoken and he has actually disqualified some people. You recall that last week. That the scribe comes and says, I'll go wherever you go. Just wherever it is, anywhere with Jesus, I'll go. And we sing that kind of song, don't we? That we'll go anywhere where Jesus leads us as long as it fits in with our criteria. Uh, we don't want to go too far. We don't want to go to a dangerous place where some harm might come to us. We don't want to go too far from family. We don't want to uh, go too far from the uh, Canadian way of life. Uh, we don't want to go to some places really backwards. They don't have television or McDonald's. Uh, we, we want something, we want comfortable service uh, with Jesus. Some place that we could just sort of say, uh, I just sort of want to sort of uh, roost here for a while. And uh, one of these days the Lord will come back and the clouds will be rolled back like a scroll. And uh, it is well with my soul. And that, that's what we want. I mean, we have to be honest. Don't, we, we don't really want that discomfort. We like the comfort zone. I don't know when that phrase came into vogue. Uh, but it's probably one of the phrases that actually has some substance to it. Because people want this little place where it's comfortable, where seldom is heard a discouraging word, and, and there's no danger involved. Nobody's going to laugh at me because of my, my, my faith in Christ. And, and that's what makes the church so comfortable. Because it is comfortable to be in the church. It is comfortable to be with God's people. But the, the service is going to end, and we're going to go out. And the same thing is going to happen tonight. It's going to end, too, and we're going to go out. And that's where we're to be. We're to be out. And here Jesus has this scribe coming, saying, I'll go wherever you go. And then we have the other individual that says, well, uh, I'm waiting. Uh, my, 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 my family is old. And, and once all of those family things are taken care of, then you can count on me. I doubt very much that those two were on the boat. But what we have is this. Jesus giving the call, and it ended in verse 22 last week, where Jesus gives the call, and the call is, follow me. And now he's getting into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Now, we don't know exactly how many, and we don't know exactly who. And we don't want to even suggest that it was the twelve. But we know at least that there were at least four individuals that we know of, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, because this is their territory. They're fishermen. They're, they're following Jesus already. They've been really handpicked by Jesus. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. They have some sense in theory of the gravity of that call, and they have some sense in terms of the, the sermon that Jesus preached of the nature of the call and how comprehensive the call is, that it is a life-changing call that affects absolutely everything. So we know of those four at least, and it's important that we know of those four at least because these are men that know the water. They know, and, and I really, believe it or not, I really like boats. Uh, I like a big boat that I won't fall out of, uh, but I do like boats, and uh, I, I enjoy that, and I, I like the water from a distance. I, I drink it, and I skate on it. Uh, I'm not much into swimming, since I can't swim, but the, I love the water. 
And I love those wonderful days where you go and, and the water before your eyes, as the weather changes, the water changes color. And it's just absolutely amazing. But I don't think there were very many admiring the color of the water on this particular day. Jesus has these men. They're following him. He gets into the boat, verse 23, and they're going to set sail. And so we're assured that at least these men are on board with them. They're experienced fishermen. They're second generation because you recall when Jesus called them, uh, they were working. They were working their trade. So they know everything about the water. They know what goes on. They know any dangers. They probably crossed before. This is not unfamiliar territory to them. We also know something about this, this body of water. And the thing we know about it, aside from the fact that it's shaped somewhat like a pear, is that it's uh, about eight miles wide and about 13 miles from north to south. It's about 150 feet deep. And I, I speak from research, not experience. <clears throat> and it's, it's 680 feet below sea level. Now, because of the terrain, exactly where it is, the lay of the land, storms seemingly will come out of nowhere. And we have that phenomena here, don't we? Where all of a sudden, uh, you might have a, a wonderful day planned and a great family event and all the rest of it, nice time by the lake and, and so forth, and all of a sudden you see the clouds and they're coming closer and closer and closer. And we, we saw that the other night when we had that wonderful thunder and lightning storm. And uh, we like to, we, we pull up the drape when that happens in our house because it's, it's the biggest green TV. Some people laugh at the little TV we have. We have a bigger one than that. It's a front window and we're up with the blind and we watch it it's just coming along and it's coming faster and faster and you see the rain and the whole bit and it's exciting. It's technicolor. It's got all sorts of flashing lights and everything for, for a generation that's in the flashing lights. It doesn't get any better than that. But storms seemingly on, on, on the lake, on Lake Galilee, down here and over there and back there, wherever else there's water because we're surrounded by it. And we, we think of Grand Lake in New Brunswick, which is just a beautiful lake, and, and storms just descend upon it. And that's exactly what takes place here. And so we have this sudden storm, and it comes seemingly out of nowhere. And we're going to learn that this is going to be hard sailing because Matthew is telling us that it's a great storm. The word for great is, is, almost doesn't do, it, do injustice. It's sort of like the way we talk and we start using the same word over and over and over again. Uh, a, a congregation can stand up and, and sing, when I in awesome wonder consider all, you know, consider the universe that your hands have made and all that has come from the, the hands of God. And it's, we say, it's absolutely awesome. And that sounds all well and good. But pizza is awesome too. But that doesn't seem to compare the creation of God and, and a pizza with all that wonderful nitrate-laden meat on top of it and all that gooey glue, the cheese to hold it all together so it won't end up in your lap. And to somehow say, that's awesome is awesome. Translation. The word great in actuality, a mammoth big. And all of a sudden, this out of nowhere, absolutely ferocious. And here they're on the boat. And we have them 
and, and all that's taking place here as this great storm comes and it comes with such fierceness that it tells us that in a moment of time the boat was being covered and it's continuous action in the original. It's coming and coming and coming and coming. This is not just getting hit by a big wave. This is wave after wave after wave after wave and they're in this wall of fierceness and here these experienced men are and it's absolutely wild. And you can see the surging waves. And if you've ever been on a boat where it's really rough, this is rougher than anything you've ever been on. And these are experienced men. And it's fascinating that these are experienced men. You would have thought they have seen this all before. But there is something very supernatural, I would suggest, about this storm. That it comes in such a way that these men, who shouldn't be afraid of anything, are in absolute fear. They're paralyzed with fear. And so it tells us that this great storm has come on the sea. You know, I, I bet that when you, uh, and turn back for a moment to the Old Testament, um, I bet when, when Jonah, and that's where we're going, if you're wondering where we're we going in the Old Testament, it's a big place, but I bet when Jonah bought his ticket... It was probably a nice day. And, and you find out something, this fascinating wording in Jonah chapter 1, where it tells us the word comes to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And Jonah, of course, uh, he doesn't say, Well, I must pray for the Lord's guidance and protection on this journey. Nothing of the sort. Uh, Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish, which is the equivalent of Spain in our day and age. He's going off to sunny Spain and uh, flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it uh, with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But here's what I want you to look at. Notice, where did the storm come from? The weatherman is, is, is on and, and Jonah's watching and the weatherman's saying it's going to be nice tomorrow, uh, 17 degrees Celsius, and uh, it's going to be 71 degrees for those that like real temperature and so forth. And, and he's looking at this and he's saying this is picture perfect. Oh, there's only one problem. Verse 4, Jonah chapter 1. The Lord hurled through, directed a great wind matters not what your translation is or it's all accurate it's got the picture this storm came absolutely out of nowhere from the hand of God hurled a great storm on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up and these experienced men are terrified they're afraid of the water and here are the disciples and they're afraid of the water they're afraid of the storm and this is a rather fragile vessel that they're on. And here they are. And notice Jesus himself was asleep. It's fascinating. The Lord of the storm is present. But he's inactive. I think there's something worth thinking about for a moment. And we'll just take a moment. And it's this that there are many times in your life where you find yourself going through storms. And you might find yourself saying, well, where's God in all of this? 
And what you need to know is this, uh, that God is always present. He's always present. He may not be active in the way in which you want him to be active because you and I are of a nature that when a storm comes into your life and my life, what's the very first thing we want? Calm, peace. We don't want to go through the storm. We don't want to have things happen to us. We just want that peace. We want that tranquility. And here the storm comes, and these men are absolutely terrified. The boat is being covered with waves. You know what's coming next. This thing is going down. And they look, and here's Jesus sound asleep. Not unlike Jonah, who was sound asleep when the men were throwing freight overboard, and they were, were throwing hope overboard as well. And Jonah was down, uh, down in the boat asleep. And here's Jesus, and he's asleep. And there's this sense of absolute disbelief that how could Jesus be asleep when we're in such danger? And so they cry out to him. And the language is fascinating because it tells us they came to him. They didn't have to go far. It's a small boat. They came to him. And they woke him, and they told him the weather report and their need. Save us, Lord. We're perishing. Now, to their credit, it's fascinating that they knew that somehow they're to turn to Jesus. These are new believers. Let's face it. These are new believers. Jesus just called them a few short days earlier when they're doing their fishing nets and preparing for the next day of, of, of work. They're young in the faith, but they knew enough to look to Jesus, and they knew that they were to cry out to him. And that's important for us to learn, isn't it? Whether you're young in the faith, or whether you've been around for a while. And some of us have been around for a while. And whether you're young in the faith, or whether you've got a little bit of wear on your treads this morning, the reality is this that we're to call upon him who is able to save us. We're to call upon him who is able to help us. And at least in their infancy days, they recognize something, having been called by Jesus, having been following Jesus, having heard Jesus preach this, this, this mag magnificent sermon, this glorious sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, having heard all that, having seen Jesus do what he does in terms of healing, and having a sense of the ministry of Jesus, Although they could not, with the, with the accuracy of a systematic theologian, lay out the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, and have it all figured out, and the, the omnipresence of, of God, and, and the, the, omni, uh, the, the omnipotence of God, the all-powerful God, while they couldn't lay this out accurately, they knew enough to know, this is who we turn to. When life is a mess, when danger comes, it is silly for me to come up with my ideas as to how we're going to do this. Let's row a little harder and let's get back to shore. Or let's see how we do. Maybe the water's not deep here. Maybe we just start swimming. They recognize that they're in danger and they recognize that the one who can help them and save them is in the boat. And they're crying out to him. That's what prayer is, isn't it? 
you know, we, we've lost a sense of that in our culture, haven't we? Think of, of where we are this morning as a people. Think of where we're going as a culture. And ask yourself, ask yourself personally, am I crying out to God as the storms of this life descend upon me? Am I urgent about this? Or is it just a few clouds and that would probably blow over? Ah, these things, sometimes they sort of track around us. Or maybe somehow we're going to escape all of this. It's, you know, I, whatever your view on eschatology is this morning, make no mistake, the scriptures tell us that through much tribulation we'll enter the kingdom. Very few generations have gone through successively untouched by calamity, tribulation, brutality of the worst kind. Very few are untouched. And I have to tell you, I don't see any good reason why we should somehow think that we're going to miss all that. You might miss some. That's good. That's nice. I don't want any. But the reality from the pages of Scripture, the reality from the pages of history, the reality from following what happens in the world in which we live, shows us that we will go through hard, hard times. And we had it easy. Our, our wave is a little disturbance in the waiting pool. Now these men are out at sea. They know they're in danger. And when they cry out, they don't have a meeting. Do you suppose we should wake up the master? Should we bother him? Let's put it to a vote. They know the danger. They see the danger. They see the Lord. They see him asleep. And they know we have to get his attention. We have to cry out to him. And that's exactly what they do. And they cry out and they ask for exactly what they need. And they spell it out in full. Lord, save us. We're perishing. Our day and age, we can't convince the world around us that we're perishing. Matter of fact, in our day and age, we can barely convince the church that we're perishing and that we need to cry out to the Lord. But here are these men, and they don't know a lot, but they know enough in their walking with Jesus to this point in their, their pilgrimage, and they know they must cry out to him. And that's exactly what they're doing. They know that they're going down, and they know that there is only one who can save them, and it's Jesus. And so they're crying out to him. Now, there's something very fascinating as we see this. And it's the way in which Jesus saves them. And he does save them, doesn't he? And it's a wonderful way in which he saves them. He could have said, peace, let's go back to shore. Not said a word. Could he have done that? Of course he could have done that. But that's not what Jesus is doing. Notice this, and notice how he wakes up, and notice what he says. And as you do, I, I hope when you read the scriptures at home, and, and you know always, one of the advantages of expository preaching 
You know what's coming next, Lord willing, unless something happens to me this week. You know what's coming next, and you can always read, and you can start reading this afternoon. I'm going to start preparing myself for next Sunday morning worship this afternoon by reading that little passage to the conclusion of this particular chapter. And think about what would happen if you did that every day this week. It won't take you any more than five minutes to read these little verses and spend a little time in prayer. Lord, prepare me now for next Sunday morning. And you know what's happening tonight. The surprise of Jacob's life. I didn't know what to call it. And uh, I had a whole lot of things I wanted to call it, but it was all Puritan titles. And it would have taken this sign and it would have had to borrow from the church down the road uh, to complete the title of it. But, but you, so you know what's coming. Now notice here. Read it slowly. Read it carefully. And notice the response of Jesus to these men in this urgent situation. Now picture the storm is around them, and now what's Jesus going to say? They wake him up. There's urgency attached to it. For modern translations, they insert something that's not found in the Greek alphabet. They insert an explanation mark. And th that's okay to do that because the inflection of the Greek language captures that. It ought to have an explanation mark. It ought to have two or three explanation marks to capture the danger that these men are in, the urgency of the situation when they cry out, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he says to them, Why are you afraid? He said, What? What kind of question is that? What do you mean, why am I afraid? Look! That's the very first question. Because they need to come to grips with the reality of who's in the boat. And they hadn't come to a full understanding. They knew where to go. They went to the right place. But they didn't have a sense of the gravity of who is in the boat. And so he gives to them a word of reproval. He reproves them. And he says to them at this point, why are you afraid? And then he tells them what the problem is. And it's this, you men of little faith. We start off with a little faith, but that faith is to grow. Andrew Fuller was a great, great man of God. And he was the reason, the human reason why William Carey went to the mission field. William Carey was absolutely petrified. He was convicted to go, and he was scared stiff. And Fuller prayed for him, prayed with him, preached to him, brought him into his study, and would sit down and labor for hours. You think counseling's hard. It's brutal. He's laboring for hours with, with, with this man. And saying, now, William, what is God's will for your life? And William is saying, God wants me to take the, the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so he says, well, let's pray and have you be going. And he says, I'm not sure I should be going. Back again. Goes over the whole thing over and over again. Preaches a little more. A few more verses. I don't know whether he threatened him with a great fish or not. But he labored and labored and labored with this man. And he kept saying, you of little faith. You of little faith. You of little faith. And there's this one point where he said, I don't think you have the faith to go across the seas. He says, I'm not sure that you even have the faith to cross the street. 
Ouch. We want people to think we're really super spiritual when we're weaklings. We're like the guy in that, those silly old Charles Atlas advertisements in the comic books. Some of you that are older, you remember that. And, and you're, you're, you're sitting on the beach with your fair maiden, and the big thug comes along, kicks sand in your face, and grabs the fair maiden and carries off. She's under his arm as the way they go. And you're sitting there. And, and what's the guy say? I've got to send money to Charles Atlas and become a real man. Well, what we need to do is bow before our Lord and pray that he'll make us into real, real Christians, strong in the faith, trusting in him, no matter what. It's easy to trust when things are going wonderful. How are things go? Things are going good. How's the family? Oh, family's great. We've had this and this and this and this. And it's so wonderful. We're so blessed of the Lord. Praise God from whom all blessings flow and so forth. And then the, you see that person. And the next week, they're lowered in a snake in a wagon wheel rut. Why? Because sickness has come to the family. My kid flunked out of school, blew a whole year's tuition. I thought he was in class studying. And he wasn't. He was all over the place. And now I've got to put my wife out to work and me out to work. I've got to take a second job. I've got the dog training for something and pulling a wagon and all this stuff. Now things aren't so hot. And Jesus says, here's your problem. This is a faith issue. We're to trust in him. Not trust in him when. Trust in him if. if we're, we're, we're to trust in him, Period. And so he says, why are you afraid? Here's your problem, you men of little faith. You have a little faith that's very good. You have saving faith that's very good. The faith that saved you will not carry you through to the end. If you're living back in the Stone Age when you came to Christ and somehow thinking that level of commitment, that desire to follow after Christ, that will not get you through to the end of the race it's a marathon race. It's not a sprint. A few months from now, in, in mosquito-laden uh, Brazil, uh, they'll be having the Olympics. And the hallmark event of the Olympics is the 100-meter dash. It takes place, and it lasts for less than 10 seconds. These guys will line up. The gun will go, and they'll be down. If you have a sneeze that's coming and you sneeze, you've missed the race. It's over with. You're going through, and it's gone. That's it. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's running, 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 running. Every day, take up the cross and follow Christ. And at the end of the day, you're absolutely exhausted. Well, I wonder what I'm going to do tomorrow. You wake up the next day. Guess what? Take up the cross and follow Christ. All the time. And we'll never grow if we're not going. We'll never grow if we're not maintaining ourselves spiritually in the word, in prayer, in God's house, with God's people, laboring in the word. He says, here's your problem. You, you don't have enough faith to trust in me. You trust in me for a few things. Here's the biggie. And it's the first big event that is coming to these men. And they're clamoring and they're frightened and they're trembling. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Why are you afraid? 
I'm with you. I'm with you. And then he does something that is just absolutely phenomenal. He speaks. He rebukes. Now, you see, the only reason that, you know, I have not rebuked many storms in my time. The, the storm didn't last long enough this morning for me to even try to rebuke it. We don't do that sort of thing. Why? Because I'm not. We've got a big family plan. It's going to rain. Well, that's okay. We, 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 we've touched and agreed on this. We're not the Lord of the storm. He is the Lord of the storm. He's the Lord of the winds. He rebukes the wind and the sea. And it becomes calm. We used to get two weather home in St. John. We got weather for us then, and then we had a marine forecast. And the forecast was atrocious. And while it might wind that was 20 miles in the 20 miles, they'd be talking, and it would be knots and going on and on about what this, what is this knot? It doesn't sound good. And they would be forecasting all of this. And my favorite one in the wintertime was freezing spray warnings. Isn't that wonderful? You're in the Bay of Fundy or in the Atlantic Ocean, salt water, and they're telling you it's so cold out there, it's so wicked out there, it's so wild out there that the salt water is going to freeze to you when you're out doing your work. And everybody's lining up saying, me first. That's cold. When the salt water is freezing, that's really cold. And we used to hear those warnings all the time. And there'd be these times where they would say, you're not going anywhere tonight. You're not going out. That's a storm. And he's the Lord of the storm. He addresses their lack of faith. How does Hebrews describe faith? We'll be quick as we close this morning. But how does Hebrews describe faith? Now, you all know where to turn. I hope you know where to turn. And, of course, it has to be the faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. And it describes and gives us a definition of faith, and it talks about the imperative of faith, and it tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. We, as God's people, are to hold to firm convictions tenaciously. Now, how many of you have ever seen the Holy Spirit? If you have, remain after. We need to have a long, long talk. You haven't seen the Spirit. Jesus tells us the Spirit comes and goes as he wills. But by faith we believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By faith we believe that God by his Spirit brings conviction upon our heart and calls us to come to Christ, draws us to come to Christ. We know that to be true. We know it to be true because God says it's true. That's first and foremost. We know it's true by experience. But even if you haven't had that experience, God says it's true that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And we see the imperative of that. For by it men of old gained approval. By faith, verse 3, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. Genesis 1, he spoke and it was. He spoke and it was. He spoke and it was. Isn't it amazing? Every time God spoke, it was. 
here we are in 2016. I wonder how many billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars have been spent by the educators of this nation over the years trying to tell us that billions and billions and billions of years ago, this all started in some kind of a big bang, which instead of destroying everything, caused everything to grow. It's the most amazing explosion that's ever taken place in history, except it never did. But they start believing a lie early. And on and on and on they go. What does God's word say? We understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made out of things which are, in, which are visible. God calls things into existence and they were and they were and they were and they were. And then he goes on and tells us in verse 6 that without faith it's impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. We'll notice next week in our, our reading of God's word from the book of Romans because periodically Christians who are so bombarded and so bullied in this anti-bullying age, so bullied uh, in, in school and college and all the rest of it to believe the silliness and every once in a while they'll say, can I be a Christian and, and and hold to evolution? And the answer is no. No. Read Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to the conclusion. We are understanding from God's word that God called the world into existence. And we're not to start off our Christian walk by being God deniers. The sovereign Lord stands up and he reproves the wind. He reproves the water. And peace, perfect peace, comes. It's utterly amazing. In Psalm 89, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, verse 8 tells us, O Lord of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. He is sovereign. He is sovereign. But lastly, notice this, and it's phenomenal. It's amazing tells us in verse 27 that the men were amazed. What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? They knew he was Jesus. They knew that. Nobody was saying, well, who was out in the boat with you? Well, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. But they couldn't figure out who is he that he speaks now, there's something important in Mark, and I'm going to go there very briefly, and then we're done, and it's this. In Mark's uh, account of this, in verse uh, 40 of the passage, Jesus asks the question, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? There's something important that we see in this chapter. Remember how terrified they were during the storm? After the storm has calmed and peace has come, Mark reminds us they became very much afraid. In other words, their fear was big before, now it's bigger. They became very much afraid and said to one another, who is this that even the wind obeys him, the sea obeys him? The Greek word is uh, delos, 
and it's translated as dread and fear. They were just rescued from a wild, wicked storm. And peace has come to the waters. And now they're filled with fear, reverence, and a sense of dread. Who is this who has the power to speak to wind and waves? And who is this this morning as we close who has the power to say, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. And he has the drawing power. He is the Lord. But he also has the power to say, depart, I never knew you. And the tragedy of the day, and it may well be the tragedy of your life this morning, and it may well be the tragedy of the entirety of your life, but make no mistake about it. When Jesus says, come and you don't come, for sure and shooting, when he says, depart, I never knew you, you will depart. You will depart. He is the Lord. Our culture has no sense of fear. They don't fear God. I hope they mean what they say when they sing, O Canada, and sing, God keep our land glorious and free. Because if we keep going the way we go, we haven't got a hope except that God keeps the land. That's how wicked we've become. But that's collectively as a people. But guess what? That collectively as a people is a collection of individuals who defy God day in and day out to his face. And how they need to respond. The wind has no sense, but it responds to the Lord. The waves have no sense. They respond to the Lord. And you and I who regard ourselves as sensible people need to respond to the Lord. And if you don't respond to the Lord, when the gospel calls you to come and believe and repent and believe the gospel, then you're giving a display of nonsense because it is utterly nonsense not to come to the Lord of glory who made you, who sustains you, and has that power to say, depart. And today is a day to come when coming days are here. And may you see your need of him this day. Let's pray. Father, we see the glorious testimony of the sovereignty of our Christ. He is the Lord. He is a son of God. He is the Savior, and he calls that we would trust in him, that we would believe in him, that we would have faith in him. And he calls us to worship him and to serve him and to honor him. And he gives glorious promises that if we confess with our mouth that he is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. What a wonderful gospel promise. And we pray that you would grant faith to those who are here without a Savior this morning. And we pray, our Father, that you would grant to us who are in Christ greater faith, that we would grow in him, in whose name we pray.